Good morning. It's great to be here with you to worship the Lord on this beautiful Sunday. Um, as Michael said, my name is Will, and I am married to the lovely Ashley. Many of you know her. Um, some of you I've not met. Um, we have two girls, like Michael said. Caroline's three, and Emily is just about two years old. We worshiped here at Christ the King um, for the first four years out of college when we lived in Birmingham. And we went away uh, back to where I am from, just outside of Washington, D.C., for six years uh, until moving back a couple years ago. And it's been great to be able to be worshiping with you here since then. As Michael also mentioned, we are in the process of planting a new Anglican church in Birmingham. It's called Restoration Anglican. Um, and we're excited to be able to co-labor with you all here at Christ the King in the work of the gospel in Birmingham. Uh, if you or someone you know might be interested in learning just a bit more about what God has been up to in and through this new work, we invite you or them to come and join us for a dinner this Saturday at our home, 730. Uh, it's in Cabo Heights, and um, you can see the link to that in the most recent Christ the King newsletter if you're on that. Or you can go to our website, partnerwithrestoration.org, and just shoot me a text or an email through our contact page. All right, well, let's take a moment just to quiet our hearts and come before the Lord, and I'll just pray for us one more time before we open God's word together. Lord, thank you so much that we are here with you and that you are here with us. What a gift that we have relationship with you because of Jesus. And we ask, God, that you would draw our hearts closer and closer to you, and we pray that you would be present showing us what we need to see this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. How do we trust in the goodness of the Lord when life doesn't make sense? My wife Ashley and I moved from Washington back to Birmingham, like I said, in August of 2020, just about two years ago to the day. And when we sensed the call back down south, we weren't entirely sure what our life would look like. While Ashley was confident that she'd be able to transfer practices as a pediatrician, we didn't know specifically what I would be up to. In Washington, I had attended seminary, become ordained, and worked for an Anglican church for six years. And by the end of that time, I was ready to take some sabbatical, to take a moment to listen to the Lord about his next steps for my life. And so following the Lord's leading and the affirmation of close colleagues and friends, in January earlier of that year, 2020, we made plans to move back to Birmingham. Like everybody else at the time, we had no idea that COVID was just around the corner. And in March of that year, we sold our house the weekend before Virginia went into a statewide lockdown. Alabama shortly thereafter followed suit. And all of Ashley's job prospects disappeared overnight. And so when we both stepped down later that year in May from our positions, we found ourselves homeless, jobless, and surprise, with our second daughter on the way. <laughs> well, after staying with my parents in Virginia for a stint, we moved in with Ashley's parents here in Birmingham for, uh, I guess it was, it was three days ago to the day. Um, hopeful that practices here in Birmingham would soon begin to hire again and we'd be able to find a place of our own. 
Fast forward six months later, we were still sleeping in Ashley's childhood bed with a one-year-old and an infant just down the hall. When we moved in with them to save some money, Ashley's parents offered to let us use their garage to store our belongings. And on one evening, as I walked through that garage en route to my car to pick up some children's Tylenol, I suddenly found myself rooted to the spot. For there in the garage before me, as always, but yet now in a way that somehow seemed to pierce my heart, I saw the outward manifestation of our life on hold. Staring silently back at me with immovable force were boxes upon boxes upon boxes with couches and chairs and tables and lamps and rugs and everything that we owned right there in front of me. And in that moment, the reality of our present predicament came rushing home to me. I honestly had no idea when we would be permitted to move ahead with our life, when Ashley would find a job, when I would have clarity as to my next steps, when we would find a home of our own. It all felt helplessly, hopelessly on pause. Imagine each of you have found yourselves in similar positions at various moments in your life. Maybe you're in one now. Seasons where life takes a turn that you didn't expect. When circumstances enter in that cause fear or worry, sadness or frustration, helplessness or grief. How do Christians continue to trust in the goodness of the Lord when things in our lives don't make sense? Well, in our Old Testament passage from Genesis 15, we find some interesting clues to help us answer this question. In particular, there are three practices that this story invites us to cultivate in seasons of confusion. First, we are to reckon with our nature. Second, to reorient our vision. And finally, to remember the identity of our Creator. Reckon, reorient, remember. So first, reckon. What does it mean for us to reckon with our nature during times of confusion? Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis 15, beginning with verses 1 through 3. I'll read those verses aloud as you're getting there. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Well, many of you probably know the story of Abraham, here referred to as Abram, by heart. The kids of Christ the King all know it, thanks to Charlie Rich's masterful, if repetitive, rendition of the hit children's church single, Father Abraham. Born and raised in a town called Ur, Abram was called by God to leave his hometown and follow him to a foreign country, eventually revealed to him as the land of Canaan. God also promised through Abram's offspring to make him into a great 
nation, a great family, which would bless all other nations of the world. Even though Abram's aging wife, Sarah, was barren. Abram was 75 when God first called him away, which since people lived longer back then was probably closer to our version of late 30s, early 40s. However, while Abram didn't know it at the time, it would be another 25 years until God finally fulfilled the first step of his promise to Abram by giving him a son. In the meantime, he had to wait. And those years of waiting were filled with trouble. Famine, war, family feuding, just to name a few. And when we meet Abram in our texts, he is, as we imagine, laying in his bed in the wee hours of the night, unable to sleep, anxiously wondering how he had gotten there, what dangers he might face next, and when, if at all, God would finally fulfill his promise to him and grant him a son. Well, God's promise had seemed reasonable enough to Abram at the time in which it was given, initially. After all, Sarah was probably in our equivalent of more like mid-30s. Now, however, she was advancing beyond those childbearing years. And so out of fear and doubt, Abram began to contrive a way in which the promise could yet be fulfilled, even if it wasn't in the way he'd originally planned or hoped. Like many in their day who were unable to bear children, they would adopt their household steward, whose name was Eliezer of Damascus. If things kept going the way that they were going, he would have to be the one, the heir, to carry on the promise. Now, as an aside, it's just important to point out that this passage is not making adoption out to be a second-rate way of having children. In fact, one of the major themes throughout the Bible, as many of you know, is the beauty of adoption, not least of which involves our own glorious adoption into the family of God through Jesus. But in this particular case, God did not intend nor promise to make Abram a great nation through the means of adoption, but through his offspring. And so it was, in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, in the midst of his anxious tossing, God suddenly reveals himself to Abram in a vision. Fear not, he says to Abram. I am your shield, your protector. Your reward shall be very great. Now you'd think that if God reveals himself to you in a vision, tells you not to fear, reminds you that his plans for you are good, that you'd suddenly be filled with peace and all worry and questioning would cease. Not so for Abram. He immediately retorts back to God, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And then as if for added emphasis to drive it home, he effectively repeats the exact same line in the next verse. Why does Abram respond this way? Why doesn't he just immediately accept God's reassurance? Well, to answer this, we have to go back, at least in part, to the earlier parts of this book in Genesis, specifically Genesis 3. 
It's there that we find Abram's ancestors, Adam and Eve, faced with a conundrum. Influenced by the loose tongue of a lying serpent, they've come to believe that God's plans for them so seemingly good in the beginning are suddenly untrustworthy. In the weakness of their flesh, they've come to believe that in telling them not to eat of one tree in the garden, that God was keeping them from living their best life. Their hearts, as they came to discover, were predisposed toward fear and doubt. It's the same fear-driven, doubting heart that Abram has inherited, and which subsequently you and I, too, have received. When we come to various impasses in our lives, however great or tiny, our human nature is to fear, to doubt the goodness of God and his purposes for us. We become anxious people, and we feel the desire to take things into our own hands. Whether it's running late to an appointment and gunning it down 459, hoarding cash with white knuckles out of fear of a recession, or digging a bunker in your backyard out of fear of the apocalypse, we are probably more prone to fear and doubt than we'd like to admit. But herein lies the most basic and first practice that our text gives us when asking how we can trust in the Lord in times of confusion. Namely, we are to reckon with our nature, to acknowledge our natural proclivity to disbelieve in the goodness of the Lord and his plans for us. And it's by becoming more and more aware of this tendency within us that we are better positioned to respond to it more effectively. And what does that response entail? Well, in part, it involves what we might call a reorienting of our vision. Turn with me to verses 4 and 5 in our passage. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. It's at this point in the text that we're first shown that Abram was indeed inside his home, inside a dwelling, maybe a large tent or a primitive kind of construction, and that it was nighttime. Knowing this, it makes the movement that happens between verses 4 and 5 very interesting. You see, God had to lead Abram outside, away from his home. For in his home, he was reminded continually of his predicament. To Abram's chagrin, there was no infant lying next to he and Sarah in the tent. As he looked at his wife next to him, laying there, he saw lines of care on her face and was reminded that she was exiting childbearing years. The luxurious and costly possessions that would have surrounded Abram, as rich a man as he was, would have reminded him that there was no heir, no rightful heir, for those things to be passed on to. All of their sacrifice and stepping out for the Lord seemed to be for naught. You see, it was as if inside his home, Abram's 
field of vision had begun to narrow. And he couldn't take his eyes off of the problem that lay between him and the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And therefore, we see God, in verse 5, leading Abram away from his home. And there, in the crisp, cool, quiet of the night, God redirects his gaze upward. Look toward heaven, Abram. Count the stars, if you can. That's where your family is going toward. That's where we're headed. I know you can't solve the problem of how you're going to get there, but that's not your department. Turn your eyes from the how and back toward the what. Re-expand your vision. Remember in the early days how captivated you were by that vision of your future. Allow it to captivate you again. Focus your heart's attention on where I am taking you and let me handle the rest. And so it was that in leading Abram outside, out of his everyday context, that God was finally able to reorient Abram's vision so that he could see what God would have him to see. Haven't you experienced that at different moments in your life? Isn't there something to the notion of pulling away, getting outside of our context in order to let our vision expand once again, to be reoriented on what God would have us see? Well, it was the same practice of retreating in order to reorient that Ashley and I were seeking to cultivate in January of 2020 when we first sensed the call to Birmingham. We'd taken a week away to the beach. It was our first extended moment for just the two of us since being parents about nine months prior. We arrived exhausted, not merely from being new parents, but from all the different demands that had come into our lives over the last few years. I didn't realize it at the time in particular, but I think what had happened to me was I was in a context where given the kind of, I was working in a wonderful church, but given the context of this large, fast-paced, high-energy church in the nation's capital, as significant and fruitful as it may have been or seemed, was wearing me thin. I had started to become a shell of the man that I once was. And deep down, I think Ashley and I both began to sense that something had to give. But we weren't able to figure out or see exactly what that something was until we had gotten away. And there, in the context of a beautiful, well-kept place of rest, hundreds of miles from our home, we began to have our perspective widened. We began to catch a renewed vision for what our lives could look like beyond our present station. We discovered desires within us for a kind of life that was full of the abundance that Jesus seemed to speak so freely of. We found ourselves wanting a simpler life where we had space in our souls to live and enjoy God, each other, and the whole of his creation. We wanted to flourish. And it was through these conversations and times of prayer that God set us on a course that would ultimately lead us here to Birmingham. You see, it was this very simple practice of pulling away that had renewed and reoriented our vision toward an alternative future 
that God was inviting us to explore. I wonder how God might be tugging on your heart to further cultivate this practice. Do you feel him prompting you, even now, to create more space in your life to reorient your vision and perspective? Maybe it's as small as taking a moment in the middle of the day to just get outside and go for a brief walk. Look up at the trees. Let the wind catch your face. Pull away from whatever is pulling on you. To take a few moments, maybe even to go for a couple hours to a coffee shop, to the botanical gardens, take a walk, sit, reflect, pause, and let God catch you in that moment. I wonder how God might reveal himself to you in those kinds of moments. Well, when we find ourselves in seasons of confusion, Genesis 15 would have us begin by humbly reckoning with the fear and doubt-inclined nature of our hearts, and then respond to that first by letting him reorient our vision away, outside of our everyday context. But there's one final practice that I'd like us to just look at before we draw to a close, and that is to remember the identity of our Creator. Turn with me again to verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. I find it deeply intriguing that the way in which God sought to reorient Abram's vision was by directing his gaze heavenward. What was it about the brilliance of the night sky that would have spoken to Abram and led him, as we read in verse 6, to a renewed belief and trust in the Lord. Certainly there were many stars. (laughs) Galaxies beyond number, far exceeding our comprehension. But were their vast number merely meant to remind Abram that he would be given a vast progeny? I think there was more to it. You see, by directing Abram's attention toward the stars toward the immensity of the spacescape, God was implicitly reminding Abram that it was he who had made it all. God Almighty, who spoke the impossible magnitude and infinite intricacies of creation into being, was the one who was giving the promise. And what's more, he made it all out of nothing. Ex nihilo. He took that which was not and made it into what is. And if God could create the entire cosmos from nothing by a word of his mouth, how small a thing, how simple a task would it have been for him to open Sarah's womb and give them a son? It would be as a drop of rain and an ocean of mighty water. Now, as one final aside, it's just important that I say that while God is able to accomplish whatever he wills, he does not will everything. 
There are myriad couples who wish to have children but are unable to. There are sick mothers and fathers who are not healed this side of the kingdom. God's will is often shrouded in terrifying mystery. But he never asks us to, nor could we comprehend the depths of his mind. What he does ask is that we seek to recognize him for who he is. There's that great scene in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf the Grey, that godlike figure in the story, reveals himself to be Gandalf the White. At one point in the mission to destroy the great ring of power, Gandalf and his companions find themselves together in the hall of a great king whose mind has been turned and warped by the enemy for his own devices. Gandalf has come there to set him free and to solicit his assistance in battle. Sitting there on his throne looking worn and aged and haggard, the king ironically begins to taunt Gandalf, believing him to be no more than a simple wizard. You have no power here, Gandalf the Grey, he says. But then in sudden response, like a flash of lightning, Gandalf raises his staff, throws off his grey cloak, and reveals a blinding, pure, white light beneath. Then he casts the spell of the enemy off of the king and restores him to youthful vigor. Gandalf's power as the king is now able to see, was unmatchably great. I wonder what thing it is that you might be facing right now. What might be causing fear in you or even doubt as regards the Lord's plans for you and your life? Maybe it's something as small as a project at work that you're stuck on or a behavioral pattern in one of your children that you're trying to find a solution to. Or maybe it's tension in a relationship. Or maybe something more substantial, and you find yourself at a crossroads with confusion about your vocation, your family's future, and maybe your own physical or emotional health. In what ways do you need to be reminded this morning that God is the maker of all things. That his power and his might are inexhaustible. And that nothing is beyond his scope or ability. Well, we need to close. How do we trust in God when life doesn't make sense? Well, our text in Genesis has shown us that there are three practices that we can learn to cultivate that help us to this end. First, we reckon with our nature as fallen people prone to fear and doubt. Second, we draw away as often as we can to reorient our vision toward what God would have us see. And finally, we remember the identity of our Creator whose majesty and power are unsurpassed. Would that we might cultivate these things in our lives more and more 
as we learn to trust in God all the days of our lives. Amen.